Welcome back to season two of Extra Shot with Alicia Fernandez-Miranda, yours truly, the author of my what-if year, ex-CEO, sometimes intern, coffee-obsessed mom. Extra Shot is part podcast, part talk show, part games, advice, and whatever else my delightful guests and I can cook up for you. My aim is to bring some hilarity, inspiration, and ultimately a jolt of energy to your day. Because we all need an extra shot of something. What's in your cup? Hello, my darling extra shot friends. I am delighted to share today's interview with you. Actually, I would say I am honored because it is with someone who has been my boss, who is my mentor, and who I am very proud to call a friend, and who I should also say allowed me to babysit for his children when I was a teenager. And they are brilliant adults now and not at all traumatized by the experience of having me responsible for them, which is frankly a huge relief. But back to the subject at hand, I am so excited to introduce you to the great Mitchell Kaplan, the Miami legend, the book world legend. Mitchell is the founder of Books and Books, and he is also best known for the creation of the Miami Book Fair International. It is the largest community book festival in the United States and a model for book fairs across the country. And it's just amazing. I was there in November after having been many, many times as a teenager when I wasn't busy babysitting Mitchell's kids. And it's just the most extraordinary community event. Mitchell has so many accolades. He is on so many boards. He is so unbelievably brilliant and so modest. And I just had the best time catching up with him. He lives in Miami with his wife, Rochelle. They've got twin sons, Jonah and Daniel, and a daughter, Anya, all of whom you can ask are untraumatized by my babysitting abilities. You know, things are going on in the literary world that are a little bit scary at the moment. Books are being banned left, right, and center. Bookstores are fighting for survival. Mitchell is at the front line of all of this. I hope you love this interview as much as I loved doing it and you feel inspired by what this true literary hero has to say. Mitch Kaplan, welcome to the podcast. Oh, Alicia, this being with you... Even seeing your face in a computer brings me such joy. I mean, the feeling is completely mutual. I I feel like my re-engagement into the book world, one of the best things about it has been having so many opportunities to see you again after only getting to see you for many years, like once a year when I would see my parents and pop into Books and Books to say hi. Well, you know, the good thing about living a long time is that you have amazing memories. And so the memories that I have of you in various stages of your life are so wonderful to go and revisit. And then to see you in person re-engages me as well. I remember the call that you gave me when you were starting this project and you were starting the whole idea of a, of a book and going down that road. And to see you, you know, I, I'm not surprised because I've, no, I've known you since you were a kid, but to watch you have such success in what you're doing just brings me such fulfillment. And so I'm so proud of you. Oh, this is so nice. And now we have it recorded for posterity forever. I mean, I th- I think I'm I'm constantly giving you credit for the great advice you gave me on that call, which was to write, to start getting my name out there, start getting short pieces out there. And, you know, you and I have known each other a long time. My tenacity 
began uh, back in, God, I want to say, okay, let's think, 1996. Yeah. When you came to my middle school for career day, I was in eighth grade. I had just gotten a work permit from the guidance counselor because I turned 14. And uh, I was taking you around. I was assigned to you for the day. And it's uh, in the Q&A section, uh, I raised my hand and asked if you would give me a job at Books and Books. And you said yes. And you actually did it. And you didn't just say it. And so I had the immense pleasure and great fortune to work at the Coral Gables store throughout high school and come back and visit constantly. And so what my first question for you is, do you remember our meeting the same way? Or was it just very annoying to have this little pipsqueak trying to get a job? <laughs> no, I remember. I, I don't necessarily remember that exactly, but I remember you being in the store and I remember just, you know, just how how amazing you were. You know, I mean, the one thing that I am, I mean, one, one of the things that I'm proud of is that I have a really good nose for talented kids because I have been surrounded by young people. You know, I was, I started as a young person and then most of the people that I hire are young, not as young as 14, but, <laughs> but I have a very blink sense of identifying people who I think have an inner an inner passion about things. And that's the that's the overarching thing that I remember about you, that you had this inner drive, this inner passion, and you were always so damn articulate, even as a 14-year-old. Yeah, so I, I knew that uh and you were a reader. You were an amazing reader even then. And it really wasn't until later on that I really put two and two together and understood all of our other connections. Correct. As well, what people don't know is Alicia's grandfather and my father were law partners <laughs> going way, 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 way back. back. So I, if you would have known that, I guess I would have technically been a Nepo baby or a Nepo right, baby. Right, but right. but I got I got the job of my own merit. Completely. So Books and Books celebrated its 40th birthday. Last year, yeah. We're now into our... We're into our 41st year. Unbelievable. So we are, Books and Books and I are roughly the same age. Books and Books is a little younger than me. Right. And now I just got back a few weeks ago from the Miami Book Fair, which was an incredible experience. Another project that you are behind. And there is so much kind of literary goodness in Miami these days. But what was it like 41 years ago when you were setting well, up the first Well, that's story? a great question because, you know, you weren't there and a lot of people weren't there and they don't understand a lot of people see miami for what it is today which mm -hmm. is this kind of vibrant hip city with things happening on south beach and all of that i grew up on south beach when the median age when i was a kid was 70 right <laughs> so it was mostly holocaust survivors and old people on social security and i couldn't wait to leave as fast as i could so i went I didn't even know where I was going. I just signed an application and I went to University of Colorado just to get as far away as I could. And for me, it was a godsend. It was perfect. But then when I came back in the late 70s and early 80s, Miami was a wasteland. It was even, it, 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 you know, in 1980, there's a marvelous book called The Year of Dangerous Days, My, you know, the year of 1980. And that was a very pivotal year because in 1980, you had the Mariel Boatlift happen, which brought over 100,000 exiles, people leaving 
Cuba and living on the streets of Miami. There, there was no place to put that many people. Right. So there weren't there. There was no place to put all of these people. So in 1980, you had the Mariel boat lift. Then you had one of the most really brutal, you know, this this brutality against a black motorist named Arthur McDuffie, and you had the McDuffie riots after the police were exonerated you know, in his killing. And it was so clear that they were involved. So they were they were the precursor to the Rodney King, you know, uh, yeah. riots. They were actually more brutal. And um, at the same time, you had the beginning of the cocaine world. You know, all of a sudden, the uh, Federal Reserve in Miami, in the Miami area said, why do we have an extra $4 billion? You know, that that is all of a sudden a bump. And it was all the cash flowing into the banks from from all the cocaine trade. Wow. So you had those three things all happening in one year. And by the time we opened in 1982, Time magazine did an article say that said Miami Paradise Lost with a big question. Wow. So we opened in really the most uh downtime in the history of Miami. And so to have a seat at the table uh as a bookstore watching Miami go through its twists and turns to where it is a city today, which is much more vibrant and much more interesting, you know, is, is a treat for me because I was there. I saw it all happen. I saw it slowly evolve. Remember, we opened before Miami Vice, before there was such a thing as South Beach Art Deco, you know, it was nothing. And it's fascinating, you know, being part of the redevelopment of the city you were born into. And I feel very much that. You know, the literary world was not a world that was very well thought of. There was there were no thoughts of Miami being a literary community. In fact, at the very first Miami Book Fair, I would ask for an author, and they'd go, well, you know, we have this new non-prescription drug book, and we're happy <laughs> to send that author down. Or we have, a, we have a kind of Daniel Steele clone, and we're happy to send that book author down. I go, no, 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 you don't understand. I have a bookstore. People are reading James Baldwin. They're reading, you know, they're reading Isaac Singer. They're reading books in Spanish. They're re a very literate community. Right? And, and, you know, when we opened, I opened very selfishly. I mean, I had just left law school, and I, I drifted to Miami. didn't think I would stay, you know, but I needed to earn a living. So I became a high school teacher. I went and got a master's degree, and I, I became I a high that. school teacher. Yeah, and I thought, in fact, I am now presenting, you know, the author, Tanana Reeve Du, who's got an amazing book called Reformatory, mm. which is, she writes in the horror vein. She'd be a great person to have on, by the way, Tanana Reeve. Amazing Good. story. She's the expert in black horror. And anyway, Tananarive Du's Reformatory, we just presented her at the book fair. And she was a 10th grade student of mine. So it's really very cool to, to get old and, and, and have histories with different people. So I taught high school. And then I was here. And I said, all right, I'll stay for a little while. And then I met my wife. And I met Rochelle. And I decided to stay. And so I, you know, always wanted to do a bookstore, and I opened up the book, the very first books and books, right in 1982. So, you know, it's watching this all happen and grow to the point where Miami now is a really bona fide literary community, mm -hmm. and it's not it's it's authors who write mystery, which was what we were known for, the Charles Williford's Miami Blues and 
and Carl Hyacin mm-hmm. and all of that stuff, Les Standard for Jim Hall. But it also now is we have poets living here, Campbell McGrath, who won the Kingsley Prize and the MacArthur Genius Award. We have writers of nonfiction. I mean, we have everybody who is recognized, Richard Blanco, the poet, who's now the poet laureate of Miami-Dade County, who read at the second Obama inauguration. So, you know, lots of good things are happening here in Miami. The fact that our store is able to exist is a testament to Miami. Uh, The fact that the book fairs had its 40th book fair, and we were the very first one of these community book fairs, really, that had the scope that we had. So... You know, all of this happened in Miami, of all places. Yeah. So I'm very proud of that. And, you know, I like to think that we've made a bit of a difference in town. So what I did, I, I think you and I talked about it a little bit, but I started this literary foundation, the Books and Books Literary Foundation. Yeah, so this is this is big, and I think yeah. new, new for the book world. So tell us about it. Well, there's a bunch of stores that are now doing indie bookstores in order to continue doing the work that they're doing, but at the same time do additional stuff that's community oriented. Because mm. most indie bookstores operate as if they're a not for profit. Right. Right. I mean, we all do stuff that doesn't really bring in much, you know, income. You know, we do 400 events a year and three quarters of them we don't sell a lot of books, mm-hmm. but we feel like it's important to expose writers to the Miami community. So it's a way of of having the community buy in to what we're doing, but at the same time, allow me and our team to start doing those things that we've always wanted to do. And for me, there are basically three things that the Literary Foundation uh, is going to be focusing on. One is going to be cultivating community, right? And really even doubling down on that. So, you know, in those sorts of things where, you know, I have this idea of doing empathy dinners, so bringing people together and, and having individuals at a, around a dining table talk about their own lives and their own stories, you know, continue with a lot of our events, take our books and authors into various partners that we have and have readings in various venues around all of Dade County, Miami-Dade County. And, and the other thing that we'll be doing is nurturing readers any way that we really can. And that would be doing things like I just I just did something with a group of, of inner-city kids who have probably never been to a bookstore. And uh, they're going to go see a play around the corner from us. And then they're going to come and visit the bookstore and have a tour of the bookstore. Yes. And we're going to be able to donate, you know, 40 books to what they're doing. And, and, and the donating of books to communities that are a bit of book deserts Mm. is an extremely important thing. It's one thing I learned when I was teaching Mm -hmm. is that a lot of kids, because I taught all different levels, and a lot of kids come from homes in which books are not present. And I want to be able to make books present in the lives of so many different kinds of people. So to that extent, we are going to be setting up libraries and prisons at the immigration centers here in Miami. These will all be free libraries that people can take with them. And then the third area that we're going to be focusing on is freedom of expression Mm -hmm. and ensuring that all of us continue to be able to be free of book banning, the chilling effect in the schools that some of these laws are having. I mean, for people listening, you're wearing a shirt right now, I can see, that says books and books, selling banned books since 1982. And I know you've been extremely vocal about 
the danger of book yeah. bans and what we need to do to stop them. No, and we've been doing it for years. You know, we've been doing it for years, the whole, you know, it started, it didn't start, but for us, you know, uh, Satanic Verses was mm. one of the early book bands or or, or chilling uh, effects that the fatwa had. And we proudly had them in all of our stores uh, prior to that. You know, and, and what's interesting, you know, also the whole idea of carrying photography books that had nudity in them, mm. which was seen as pornography, which it really wasn't. Books by like Robert Maplethorpe, Sally Mann. It was also a very famous book by that Madonna put out called Sex. Oh, yeah. Which was covered in Mylar. And there were all kinds of groups trying to prohibit us from carrying it. <laughs> but what was different then is that those groups were just kind of fringe groups. Right. The difference now is you have government, you have governors, legislatures, you have people who are in the government who are promulgating these book bans. And that is a true violation of First Amendment rights and we have to because really you know given what's happening in our world right now book banning is just the tip of the iceberg and the 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 majority of the iceberg is underwater but we know what they're trying to do Mm. which is to sink our democracy so we have to really be very cognizant of making sure that democracy survives or there'll be no bookstores in the same way that we know them yeah so when i worked at the store i worked at a different location in Coral Gables, where the old bookstore used to be. And the store now, for those of you that haven't been there, is, and there are several books and books around. The one in the Gables has a cafe, it has a bar, you have live music, you have great food. And so it is so much more than just a place to buy books. And it kind of speaks to the first point that you were making about the foundation is creation of community. I mean, do do you think that that, do you think that's changed? Or do you just think Books and Books is upgraded to a site that can now incorporate all of those things that people always want to Well, we, we opened that store. Tw- we're now more than half of our years are in that store. Okay, and by the way, it's, I still think of it as the new store because in my head, I'm still 21, so Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like me. I'm the same way. We have the, I call it the Billy Pilgrim effect in Slaughterhouse-Five where Billy Pilgrim kept, you know, time, uh, you know, time dancing and time traveling. <laughs> but that store was the kind of uh, ultimate uh, apotheosis of what I've always wanted to do, Mm. which is have that place that is like the true third place. After work, after home, where do you go to meet your neighbors? A bookstore, a bar, a beauty parlor, you know, wherever. And a bookstore is one of those places. And so it really does that. And what's so cool is post-pandemic, the last two years have been probably the most successful years we've had because people understand what they've lost or what they lost during the pandemic. And now people also understand how true independent businesses really are, how true to their voices they are, Mm. and how they reflect their community. And they're real. They're not manufactured. You know, they're not, it's not done in a corporate office somewhere trying to figure out the best way of luring people in. Yeah. I mean, what we do, you know, I, I like to say that we're part of the passion economy and that's what I we love do. That. So, you know, people ask me, oh, you know, when are you going to retire? Well, you don't retire about things you're passionate about. So, I mean, I would never leave what I'm doing. I mean, it may change and shift and mm. 
all that. So in essence, what you just mentioned is exactly the heart and soul of what we're trying to do. And so retail, none of us know what retail will be like, right? I mean, who knows? We may be strapping on an Oculus. Correct. There's probably going to be robots somewhere. Yeah, we may be visiting the bookstore that way, right? That sounds terrible. (laughs) But the actual human connection, but the actual human connection of going to a bookstore is always something that we all need. And so I want to kind of, I want to sort of unmoor the success of all the stuff that we do from retail. Yeah, I don't want to necessarily be dependent on just what we do for retail. Plus, it'll allow us to be able to pay our booksellers a living wage, which is yeah. really important. So it amp it it kind of supplements all that we're doing. And there are a bunch of bookstores. It's a movement. You know, you see it in newspapers as well. Lots of yeah. newspapers newspapers have started this hybrid model where they have, you know, they have this, and that's kind of what we are. We're a hybrid model, you know, for profit as well as having this funding. I love it. So it feels to me like in the past few years, and I don't know if this is just because I've kind of come into the book world, or if you also see this, that like books are very cool right now, right? They're they're hot. Like you've got Jenna doing her read with Jenna and Reese doing her read with Reese. You know, I've seen so several kind of people I follow on Instagram, bookfluencers, bookstagrammers, opening up bricks and mortar bookstores, tiny ones in different places. Do you think that bookstores are hot right now? And do you think that is kind of what you were talking about, this feeling coming out of the pandemic of what we lost? Or do you think it's something else? I think it's a combination of all that. And I also think, and and this is going to age me more than you probably, (laughs) but I also think it's the Harry Potter generation coming of age. Yeah. So if I can think, you know, you were a kid, but I remember the remarkable Harry Potter parties we had with thousands of kids who developed reading at that time. And, you know, it was pre-Instagram, pre-computers and the way we have it now. And that love for books, that love for reading exists among people in your generation. And at the same time, because you know, the way I like to think of it is, what we do, what you do, what I do, it's a very narrow sliver of our world. Mm. You know, readers, people involved with books and all of that. But we've always we've always fought above our weight class, you know, because books and readers have always been the ones that have driven a lot of popular culture. So even before Reese and other people use books to be film, mm-hmm. you know, books have often been the R&D of culture it's been the way that you know it's been a kind of hothouse of culture so it's always been a kind of narrow tribe that we all belong to in a sense and what's happening is that because of instagram because of social media our voices are once again are being able to fight above our weight and hold our own and so that's why you're seeing and the algorithms to be honest probably point you in the direction of every single book. (laughs) They definitely know what I want. They know what I want very well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yes, the answer is yes. Books are are again capturing the imagination of people. It's why it gives me so much hope. You know, I've been through 40 years of the end of the book all the time. It was first, it was (laughs) CD-ROMs, then it was the internet. Then it was digital books. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they were going to kill off the physical book. I, you know, 
the, the physical book will always, always have a very special place in our cultural landscape and won't be dying off anytime soon. As long as we're telling stories and the way we tell stories, people want them. Plus, the other thing that's so cool, I mean, look what look what Liz Cheney did, right? When she wanted to express, you know, all of her fears and all that, she wrote a book. Yeah. Right. So people are still using books to get information from point A to point B. Yeah. I love it. That's so beautiful. And Mitchell, this has been a lovely conversation. I want to finish by asking you to bestow on everyone listening the advice that you gave me. I know there's a lot of people who are aspiring authors thinking about writing, and I was lucky that I had a direct line to you to say, what the heck do I do? What do you wish aspiring authors knew about the book industry from your years of experience in it? I think basically there is a mystique around getting a book published, right? Thinking that somebody knows how to do it. You just have to reach that right person. Mm. And that's really not the case. Really, what you really need to do as a writer is focus on your book. Create the best book that you can possibly create. That's the very first thing you need to do. Make sure you have your voice honed in perfectly, that you have a lot of really good, smart readers doing what you want to do. And whether it's fiction or nonfiction, it's all about the book because it's not about any hype. It's not about who you know to get your book published. Mm. It's all about get, getting a book that is worthy or that says something in some way that other people want it. Once you do that, then it becomes a marketing thing. It becomes, as you know... Yeah, we were just talking about this. Got to hustle. <laughs> how to get it in front of people. How to get it to agents. How to get that voice that you've honed. How to get that voice out there so other people want to publish you. I can tell you, and, I'm, and I don't think I'm being Pollyannish about it, but... I can't think of too many really great books that have not been published. Mm. If you write something really important, really something that says something, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, poetry, it will find its publisher. I'm very confident of that. Yeah. And you should be too. And and never feel like, oh, be brazen. Find your inner Alicia. Read her <laughs> book. That is... You know, what, what your book says and does is exactly what I'm advocating for. Be fearless. Because really, you know, publishers are looking for really good books. So there's no, you know, there's no mystique around it. You know, and, and it's a very inexact thing. So it's really about taste. It's about finding someone who believes in you as you did, Alicia. And it's a beautiful thing to see your book in print. And to see, you know, to know that you've touched somebody else's life, and uh, both as a reader and writers out there, I think uh, I, Alicia would agree with me. I think you would agree with me, Alicia, that we are the luckiest people alive that we get to yes. we get to do this. And you no longer have a my what if year; you have a real year. My yes, I did it year, yep. and yep. that for me makes me so proud to know that I've seen you almost from the beginning of your of your emergence as a lover of books and a lover of writing. So, and now you're with this podcast, you're able to get this out to so many other people. I love it. 
And I really, people are going to think I paid you for this, but no. Never, never, you know. Mitchell is saying these things out of the goodness of his enormous heart. No, no, no. I'm not saying it for any other reason that I actually believe it. And I wouldn't say it if I didn't. And, you know, even though you're in, I don't know if you're in Scotland now, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I know that you're across the Atlantic, but you will always be part of my DNA, Alicia. You know that. And I look forward to what's to come next. Oh, Mitchell, thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure. Anytime. And that's a wrap on this episode. Thanks for tuning in to Extra Shot with Alicia Fernandez Miranda. A very special shout out goes to my superstar team at Texture Sound for their support. Find out more about what I'm up to, my writing, events, and even the retreat I'm planning in Scotland at my website, aliciafmiranda.com or Instagram at aliciafmiranda. I'll talk to you next week.